Hello and welcome to another edition of Here's the Pitch, sponsored by Masses Restaurants in St. Louis, five locations. STLMasses.com is their website. Go there and check out their menus. You can check out directions to the restaurants. Some of them you can go in and actually eat at. Hopefully in 2021 you'll be able to go in all of them. But STLMasses.com, thank you for being my sponsors. Thank you for staying open and thank you for supporting restaurants during this tumultuous year. Hopefully 2021 is better. On this edition, I'm uh, going to play some interviews with authors. Here's the Pitch is the name of the podcast. We talk baseball. We meld them together, and that's what we do here. So we will hear from authors Ken Rosenthal, Jeff Perlman, Will Leach, and Jordan Scott. And uh, we'll start with Ken Rosenthal. This is a conversation I had with him a while back, but we talk about uh, getting the scoop, and that was uh, an interesting thought that we start with here. So let's uh, go back and listen to that conversation with Ken. I'm curious about just your business and the, the, the way you work and the way you do uh, have to scoop and kind of get these, these trade deals and especially trade deadline time or winter, winter meetings. What, tell me the process that goes through with that. Are you, uh, is it 50-50? You're more friendly with the agents, the GMs? Who's giving you the most information? Is it a split? I mean, it seems like the agents obviously get you that, that, the, the numbers. Tell me a little bit about just getting the scoops and having great relationships and then and, and then these guys wanting to tell you what they're doing. Joe Strauss would shoot down this question as well. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, Brad, all due respect, I'm, I'm being serious, and you're you perfectly right to ask that question. I've been asked it before. A lot of people want to know, but I never talk about process. It's kind of my thing, and I do it a certain way. Not that it's rocket science or anything like that, but I talk to a zillion people. That's basically all I ever say. And... A lot of times, it's so interesting that if I break something, people... Well, I'll give you an example. I just wrote a story about the Braves for The Athletic yesterday. It's about kind of some disruption in their front office and dysfunction and all that kind of thing. And everyone's trying to guess the sources, guess the sources. That's the game people play, and sometimes they're wrong, and oftentimes they're wrong. I mean, sometimes they're right, oftentimes they're wrong. So... I just don't talk about it. Um, it's kind of a private thing in my view, and I hope you understand. No, it's the magic. You're like David Blaine. Although it was, I, I wouldn't say it's magic. <laughs> it's work. No, but and I will. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't want to. By not talking about it, I don't want to give that impression. Well, no, it's simply work, and this and is it's hard work. But it, it's not anything that you know, mystical or anything like that. <laughs> well, it'd be like me asking John Mosellock, all right, so what are you going to do next? I totally understand why you say that. But Strauss was funny because you mentioned Strauss and everybody here knows Joe. And Joe would always, he'd even dig for, for me. I worked at Fox Sports Midwest for a long time. So sometimes I did have some information like, oh, they're going to retire Tony LaRusso's number. Oh, David Freeze is in trouble. Mm-hmm. And you would hear, he'd come over to me and I'd kind of give him a little bit. I'm like, wait a minute, he's using me as a source. Get out of here, Strauss. <laughs> well, I'm sure you were a primary source, but right. guys like Joe, guys like me, we get information from all kinds of places, and some of them would really surprise you. And if I ever write a book, Brad, and it probably won't happen until I'm about 90, maybe I'll talk about some of this stuff, uh, because I'm sure people would find it very interesting, but I certainly am not going to talk about it while I'm still doing it. I, I totally understand. i got a few more minutes with you, and I appreciate your time. So the Twitter scoreboard, is that sort of become what you guys look to is you know basically it seems like 
any sports fan is looking for breaking news. And if you can be the guy to break the news, it sort of is a feather in your cap. Is that, and I know you guys are pretty friendly, it seems like. So you'll, yes. you know, Bob Nightingale, just, just recently today, you guys both kind of had the Mike Leak thing. Um, just, is that kind of how people in your business sort of just look at how you're doing your job? Is, is there a Twitter scoreboard? Not obviously, Hey, it's five, nothing I'm leading, but you know what I mean? That's a fair question. And this one I can answer at greater length with greater detail. I don't look at it quite like that. Obviously, it's an important part of my job. The MLB Network in particular likes to have me as an information person who can get this kind of thing. The Athletic, I don't know that they necessarily saw me that way. They want my writing. And now some of my writing involves news-type things. But to me... I do a lot of different things. Breaking news is one of them, and in some ways, not that important, considering that if I do break a story, everyone else is going to have it two minutes later. If it's a transaction, if it's a story about a team's dysfunction, like I just mentioned with the Braves, that's a little bit different. And actually, those are the kinds of stories now that I prefer to write because you can't chase them, because it's a real, true, old-time exclusive, if you want to call it that. Now exclusive last a few minutes. Now, I say that, and I've even talked with editors of different places, and they've said to me, this stuff, the transaction stuff is useless. You guys shouldn't put so much energy in it. Uh, we want you to do this, etc." I understand that point of view, and I understand fans who say we don't care who's first. But to that, I counter, there are 900,000 people following me on Twitter. I don't think they're following me because I'm a great writer. I don't think they're following me because I'm on television. They're following me for information. So there's value in it somewhere. And I understand that value. And I understand that people look to me to do that. So it's a part of my job. I don't want it to be all of my job ever. I tell young people all the time, this is not what it's about. That is a product of everything else, of maintaining relationships, of being able to work sources, be able to write stories and communicate them effectively. That's just part of it. It's pretty cool. So MLB right now, I just looked a couple weeks ago just for fun, and I looked at their Twitter count, and then I looked at the NFL's Twitter count, and I looked at the NBA's, and those are off the charts, and MLB is, is distantly third. And I don't think that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not a doesn't say what's with the game, but are, I mean, they're really trying hard. We saw players weekend with the, the nicknames. What, what do you think the MLB is right now? Um, is, are, are there issues? I know they're very big on wanting to promote stars. Uh, they, they're very big on obviously wanting to have ratings like the NFL, but it, to me, it just seems like this has always been a localized sport with, you know, a Sunday game of the week where you kind of want to see what Trout's doing, but you don't have to watch his game. I remember when the Blue Jays were good in 89 and 90. They showed their games a lot here in St. Louis on Saturdays, and I knew who George Bell was, and I knew Jesse Barfield and Jimmy Key, but I didn't need to see them. I mean, it's always sort of seemed like it's localized. What is? What are your thoughts on just where MLB is? Are they trying too hard? Do you think they're kind of doing the right thing? And what, what in five years, what's the issues? I wouldn't say they're trying too hard. It's important to try. You always want to build your audience, and that's important. Now, I agree with you that essentially it is a local sport, and by that, what we both mean is St. Louis Cardinal fans 
They care about the Cardinals. They don't really care about the rest of the sport. There's no LeBron James type thing going on here where the people just can't wait to watch the superstar play. It's a different sport. It's 162 games. The basis for revenue is largely local, be it attendance, local TV deals. So that, to me, is something that makes baseball unique. It's not a bad thing. And I know there's always a lot of talk. My friend Jason Stark has written extensively about this. The face of baseball. Who's the face of baseball? I don't look at it that way. Cardinal fans want to know who the face of the Cardinals is. Yeah, they don't care who the face of baseball is. Same in every other city. So that's a healthy thing. That's something that baseball shouldn't run from, but it does present some complications. The national TV deals maybe aren't going to be as big in some respects because it's not the same as the NFL, right? The NFL is certainly a national type thing every Sunday, etc. Now, not that the baseball TV deals are bad. They're very lucrative. But what they're trying to do is simply appeal more, I think, to younger people. And that is something that is a concern. They, all the numbers point to most fans being older, or at least a greater percentage of fans. And while there are plenty of young people who like baseball, you always want more because that's the future. And Players Weekend, that kind of thing, that's where I think that is going. Yep. Winding down, last couple seconds here. I wanted to kind of ask... Favorite moment, favorite story you've written, favorite kind of player you've been around. You were with Baltimore for a long time, Baltimore Sun with Joe, uh, a great writing staff there. Do you have any favorite, when someone says, oh, tell me your favorite moment around, that's, I know it's such a cliche question, but. No, I mean, it's my, a good question. Okay. And actually, I always say the same thing, and it's an answer that I don't expect will ever change because I've covered some amazing things. From the Cardinals World Series when Freeze hit the home run, all this stuff. Uh, or the, That's my favorite, by the way, in case, any, sure in case anybody cares. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I've covered World Series, All-Star Games, Olympic Games, Super Bowls, NBA Finals, you name it. I covered pretty much everything before I became just a baseball person. My favorite moment, though, is still the same. And it's Cal Ripken breaking the consecutive games record at Camden Yards in 1995. I was a columnist for the Sun. I was fairly a young columnist, 33, almost 33 at the time. And it was a big deal personally because back then there was no internet and writers came in from all over the country and I knew that they would be reading me and there was a lot of pressure for a number of reasons. It was an event that was attended by not just the president but by the vice president as well. Clinton and Gore. Joe DiMaggio was there. It was that day for actually maybe even a couple of days, the biggest thing ever in sports. So the biggest thing in sports, not ever. So beyond all that, it turned out to be a beautiful night and people remember what they remember about it, but the victory lap and all of that. And I remember coming home and I tell this story all the time too. And my wife was watching on TV, not really a big fan, but she was watching that night because everyone in Baltimore was for sure. And she said, Hey, you know, I was really happy you got to cover that because there's a lot of things you get to cover. <laughs> you have to cover that are not so positive. And this was really positive. And it's not that Cal was my favorite player or anything like that. In fact, I didn't have the best relationship with Cal, but that night was just such a magical night and so important to me in my career not that it got me anywhere, but it was just a big night. 
that's the one I always say. And to this, I, I will add one thing. A lot of times people say of the media, you guys write negative things because that's what sells papers. That phrase is not used as often anymore, but you've heard that over the years. Well, the best-selling newspaper in Baltimore Sun history is September 7th, 1995, the day after Ripken broke the record. And I don't believe we were making up negative things as people often accuse us of doing to sell papers in that particular edition. I'm going to have, I have that one because I have family up there and I have so much Cal Ripken stuff because they lived up there and they, I was a huge baseball fan. They sent me all that stuff. Always enjoy talking to Ken Rosenthal. He's been good to me over the years and quick story about Ken. This was a, a while back. I was with a good friend of mine, Mr. Tim Trokey. It was late at night and we were having a conversation about the, the Hall of Fame. Baseball Hall of Fame and how mad we'd get about people not being in and the writers that don't vote uh, correctly. So I was mad at this at this point during a omelet, possibly, a second omelet, and uh, we're talking about Lee Smith and why Lee Smith wasn't in the Hall of Fame. He was the all-time saves leader for a long time. And I was like, man, why is Lee Smith not in the Hall of Fame? We got into this whole argument. I said, let's text Ken Rosenthal and tell him he should vote for Lee Smith. So at 3 in the morning, texted Ken, and he's like, will do. So Lee Smith is now in the Hall of Fame. I'm not sure if it's because of Ken, and I appreciate Ken for still contacting me back. After a drunk text, I have to say. I was drunk texting Ken Rosenthal. But I appreciate his time. Uh, The next author you're going to hear from here is Will Leach, who is from the Midwest, close to St. Louis, Mattoon, Illinois. And I met his family, actually, before I met Will, and it was kind of fun as I was traveling with the Cardinals. I met his dad and his mom on a plane ride out to San Francisco. Uh, Al Rabowski was with, was with us, and Al got to hear from Will Leach's dad for a three-and-a-half-hour flight. I think Al was totally enjoying that. But anyway, I met Will after that and uh, was always interested in the start of Deadspin and how he did that. And then uh, we delve into Cardinal fandom here. We'll uh, hear that in a second. But uh, also want to remind you to go to YouTube and check out my podcast on YouTube because I put most of these up in video form at YouTube. And you can see that in the description. Subscribe and it's very easy. If you don't want to subscribe, you can just search ST Weekly. Sports Talk Weekly, former show I used to do back way back in the day. That's the name of the YouTube channel, so go there. Subscribe. I put up video podcast interviews first there, and uh, then I put them over here on the podcast version. So hopefully you're there and you subscribed and we're watching all of the stuff I've been doing of late. been interviewing former Howard Stern cast members and associates and guests of that show. I've interviewed uh, some WWE stars. I do a lot. Here's the pitch. is not just baseball. It's people who have books or are pitching things. And that's what Will Leach was doing here. He was pitching himself, uh, writing for MLB.com. But here is our conversation again. It starts with our talk about Deadspin. But your dad is the reason I found out about Deadspin. So this was 2006, <laughs> and I didn't know what Deadspin was, so it just opened. But for folks, obviously, who have followed your career, you helped create Deadspin and uh, it's one of the preeminent sports blogs. I mean, people talk about it. They do um, kind of what sports fans look for. But uh, you were there when it started, and it, it, it definitely went through some changes and, and big media corporations and all that stuff. But how, how proud are you when people talk to you about that and bring up Deadspin and, and you being that founder? Yeah, yeah, certainly. By having my father introduce you to Deadspin is probably the best possible way to be introduced to Deadspin. Usually, uh, uh, it's that or like a photo of genitals. So I'm glad that you got. I'm glad that you got my dad. Unintended, uh, unintended dong is usually my favorite uh, thing they do. 
They're a yeah, little. Yeah, that, was, that was my. That was my. Uh, my, the, my the saddest band name uh, that I had in, in college. Um, <laughs> unintended dunk. So no, we. Uh, Deadspin. I launched. I, I was the founder of Deadspin. I launched it in two thousand five. Uh, basically. I, uh, I I moved to New York in the year 2000 and to make my way in the world of journalism and to be fancy pants serious writer man and starved for like five years and uh, answered phones at doctor's offices and uh, I had a brief moment answering phones for Telemundo, which I was really bad at because it turns out you have to be able to speak Spanish to answer phones at Telemundo. I just said like, no, a lot. <laughs> and uh, So, but basically uh, I, while I was out there, while doing the kind of those odd jobs, I I did a lot of work on my own in kind of the early days of online and Gawker Media saw what I was doing and said, hey, we kind of like some of your stuff. Would you, do you have any ideas on stuff you might want to have us do? And so I kind of, I said, you guys should do a sports site. And I mapped out the idea of how a funny sports site that would really be about the bridging the gap between the people that work in sports and the people that consume sports. To me, I had worked as a more traditional sports reporter before and found it generally kind of unsatisfying because I found a lot of people that did it for a long time started to like sports a lot less than they had when they started. And I love sports. So uh, I wanted to kind of like, I mapped out the idea of how a fun sports site that had a good sense of humor and was all about the sillier aspect of sports, but also like called out some of the uh, hypocrisy uh, in sports a little bit. And they said, wow, this is a really good idea. Nobody has any idea who you are. So we're going to hire you to be a famous person's assistant <laughs> when, we get, when we find the right famous person. And fortunately for me, all the famous sports writers turned them down. So they said, fine, you got six months, you're cheap, go for it. And the site became Deadspin. Uh, and I was very fortunate and very lucky. Uh, I did it for three years um, and loved every minute of it. I was very controlling of Deadspin. I was very, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't consider myself an entrepreneur or some sort of visionary. I type, you know, that's what I do. I write, I do some television now, but mostly I write. And, I, and that's the work that I do. So um, for me, I, I that was exciting for me to have, uh, it connect with an audience like that. I don't think it was because people just thought, wow, Will's so genius. We have to pay, we have to, can't wait to hear what he has to say. I think it was more that the world kind of wanted a site that took sports a little less seriously and kind of had fun with it and called out some of the junk that people didn't like about sports in kind of a funny way. Uh, and someone was going to do that eventually. And so Deadspin, I was just lucky to get there first. So Deadspin got big enough eventually where they needed, it needed to be a corporation and, and a big, huge thing. I, that's not really my bag. So I left to go to New York Magazine, uh, where I still write today, as well as New York Times and MLB and all the other th things I'm sure we'll talk about. But Deadspin is still running and still doing great. I know, uh, I know everyone that's worked there. I know the editor-in-chief now. I've known every editor-in-chief uh, that, that's worked there and a ton of the people that write there. I'm very honored uh, to get to be associated uh, still. I like to think some of my DNA is still uh, on that site today. Day. And I'm very everything that they do. Uh, I'll put it this way: if the person that took over Deadspin for me had run it into the ground, no one would care that I founded Deadspin. They'd be like, "Oh, that's right, you founded that one site that I can't remember the name of because it fell apart." So I feel like I'm always kind of living off the largesse of all the people that came after me. So thank you, AJ Delario, Tommy Craig's, Tim Marchman, and Megan Greenwell for making Deadspin really big. So uh, I continue to get to have some of the spoils from it. Yeah, and I we had this conversation before, but I, I think it'd be fun to get your take on it for other people to hear. I, I think I asked you one time, "Do you like?" 
I understand the, the the beating up of the Cardinals is kind of your thing, and I don't mind good natured ribbing. But there's sometimes I love the Cardinals. For the record, to be very clear, we, I love right. the Cardinals, and I will never beat up the Cardinals. <laughs> no, no, no. Cardinals. And I do but too. That be, happened after me. All right. the dead spin Cardinals fighting happened after. Me. And that's fine. When a team's winning, that's what's going to happen. You don't see them beating yeah. them up now. But uh, I think I think what I asked you was like, you know, man, it. I love Deadspin. I, I still check it out uh, every once in a while, not as much as I used to, because I just felt like it was just getting really mean to everybody. To hey, this is why your team sucks, or here's uh, bad. <laughs> and I asked you if you found it to get if you found it to maybe kind of skewing that way. And you and I thought you said no. You know that that's what they did. And I was just curious. You know, as we look back on it now, I don't think they're as, as biting as they used to be. Um, you know, maybe in 2014, 2013, when it was, mm. it, it, I think it's apex when people were just going there. I don't know what. A good amount of people is, but a thousand million hits per second. I don't know, but just tell me a little bit about what you thought when you kind of saw. I know the Cardinal thing was kind of a shot at you, and again, the Cardinals were good, so you're going to take shots at the teams that are good. But what did you think about kind of the negativity they were kind of spewing? Because it felt like every article was like, "Your team sucks," and Belichick's an idiot. I think that uh, a lot of that came from Drew McGarry, who is still on the site and probably the most popular writer. Even back in my uh, uh, back after I left, soon after I left, he was the most popular guy there. He's been there a long time, and he started this series called "Why Your Team Sucks." And the point of the series was not to say your team sucks and you're a terrible person. It was almost it was meant as like a satirical fun way to make fun of a team because that's what we do in sports, right? We totally make fun of teams that aren't ours. That's uh, like I have a if you want to hear a million Cubs insults, trust me, I got them. I don't like the Cubs. Uh, so that's part of fun, the fun of sports, right? But sports are also very territorial. So when you say something about someone else's team, it feels a lot worse when it's said back to you. And particularly because I would argue that Cardinals fans, we think of ourselves as the good guys. Like, and I, I'm not saying we're not. I just think that, like, a lot of, like, for example, a Yankees fan, no Yankees fan thinks that their team are the good oh, guys. Well, so I'm, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to let you go on. Uh-oh. But we're going to get in. They they're good, and they like their team. We're going to get into this. I, Cardinal fans, mm, we'll get into it. All right. But well, no, no, okay, okay. There's a, okay, to be fair, I'm not saying that, like, every Cardinals fan thinks every move that Mike Matheny and John Mazalek is great. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that every Cardinals fan thinks the best fans in the world are Cardinals fans, which is fine. I think that way, too, because the Cardinals are more than just they're, they're obviously a baseball team, but they're more than a baseball team. Like this is like we talked about earlier with Tito Landrum and Ken Daly and the fact that I will remember the starting lineup for the 1982 St. Louis Cardinals on my deathbed like it is a central part of my life and most cardinal fans are the same way and so and when there's so many of them it inevitably becomes something that you become very uh, pr- 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 uh, protective of and something that you want to you do not like people the outsiders coming in and ripping on so i get that so drew drew's the conceit for his column was always meant to be a mocking of every team but the difference was he was a little meaner when he did the Cardinals one because it was me. And he loves to keep fun of me because we're friends. But I, what happened was Cardinal fans, because we're not used to being criticized like that, and we're not used to having that sort of exposure, we think of ourselves as, hey, we love the Cardinals, yay! And I think the outpouring of uh, uh, the number of people that were angry and took the column so dead seriously took Drew aback. And what happens when you're Drew and you're deadspin is to be like, wait, you guys are so upset about this. We, of course, have to keep doing this now. And that's really kind of how that got started. And you're right. I think it is very telling that as the Cardinals have not made the playoffs the last couple of years and have not been as high profile, there haven't been as, been as many posts uh, ripping on the Cardinals. But, so I do think there is something to the success that the Cardinals had. But I also think there is, like, 
he did a column like that about, about the Arizona Cardinals, my favorite football team. And that was just as mean, if not meaner, than the St. Louis Cardinals piece to me and the fans of that team. But nobody cared because there aren't very many Arizona Cardinals fans, and they're not all that sensitive about their team. We Cardinal fans deeply care about our team and have a lot of our identity wrapped up in our fandom. And therefore, we took it personally in a way that, frankly, kind of compounded the problem they were counting off losses each time. Right, by the way, the Cardinals oh, lost. I remember. I remember. I remember. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. Now, this is the other conversation we had. We had a long talk one day, me, you, and your dad. But this was the one that I think we argued uh, until you said, all right, I got to get inside of the ball game. But my, <laughs> and, and it's about Cardinal fans. And I know we are probably the same. I mean, I just die hard. But I die hard with this team. I really want them to do I want them to win. And I've lived this thing. It's religion to me. I, I go on and on and on about how much this really is part of like my fabric. I, I was put here for a reason to live in St. Louis and be a Cardinal fan. But that being said, I do just get, I had to work the winter warm up for 15 straight years and you just see the Cardinal fan and it's not really there. It's more at the ball game. They, they take pride in being called best fan in baseball and they mm-hmm. overdo it and they pat themselves on the back by, you know, it just, to me, it gets overboard when you start believing your own hype Yes, we're very smart, and yes, we grow up on this stuff, and it is like an Alabama football. Like we do know everything about you know Jordan Hicks before he came up. But I always get this bad feeling about Cardinal fan being way too into themselves. Uh, I just enjoy the game. I don't need everyone to know that. Yeah, I'm a Cardinal fan, and you know I, I call it elitist. We, you know, sometimes I get called an elitist because I know things about the Cardinals. And the friend of mine is like, "You're a baseball elitist." I said. I just know things. I, I've studied. This is what I do. But my point was <laughs> Cardinal fans sometimes take themselves too seriously with the best fans in baseball moniker. And I think you, you kind of you went back at me and said, you should. So I was just curious, you know, your thought on, on that. Yeah, well, I, first off, like anytime you work in media, you're going to see things on a massive. Like, listen, I, if, I, if, I just, if I saw the responses to my work all the time as a cross-section of humanity, uh, I would be very down about humanity across the board. I think when you work in media, I always have felt, kind of felt like part of the job when you work in media is almost to be like a stress valve for America. Like the way that like a coach yells at a ref. Like your job when you work in media is people are really, they get very upset and passionate about things and they yell at you about them. And so I've always kind of felt like part of my job is to just take it. <laughs> like part of my job is just accept that like, yep, they're mad at something else other than me, but I'll take it. I'll, I'll, I'll accept it uh, as is. But I'll say that uh, uh, when it comes to the Cardinals, I think that, like, listen, I remember 1995 as a Cardinals fan when there were no cocky Cardinals fans in 1995. Like, no one was like, wow, we are truly the greatest fans in baseball. Well, I did have a, I had a Mike Morgan jersey, I will say. Yeah, yeah. No, I love this. Yeah, exactly. Well, if you were a Mike Morgan fan, you could have like 18 different jerseys because he played for 18 different teams. But like being, you know, with, with the Cardinals, one of the reasons the Cardinals seem like they're really proud of them, Cardinal fans seem like they're really proud of themselves and sometimes even a little spoiled is because they have been. This team has been relevant and good for more than, tw- for 22 years now and, and has given its, its fans, I mean, I've always joked that 2011, it's almost hard for me to get upset about anything anymore because 2011 is just the absolute pinnacle of what I think a fan experience could it's, possibly it's be. It's our 1964. I remember my dad always yeah. bringing up 1964. I'm the same way. We're not, we're never going to see 2011 again. So I'm the same way. Whatever yeah. else happens is, is gravy. 
Yeah, so I think because there's been so much success, uh, I think there's an expectation and there's an entitlement involved. And also, because there's been so much so success, it is tied even more into our identity. And I think it's, don't think of it as like, we really truly believe that every other fan in baseball is not as good as we are. It's not that. I don't think that people have actually sat down and made like a calculation and said, yep, I, there are not enough people at that Red Sox game today we're better fans than they are. It's not that. It is just a, like, listen, a lot of Cardinals, like, you know, you know how this is. You know, you've, you've, you've been in, in, in larger states. I lived in New York for 13 years. There is this unquestioned sense of when you live out, like, I worked in New York. I, everybody in New York thinks the only city that matters is New York. Just like in Los Angeles, everybody thinks the only city that matters is Los Angeles. And when you're not in the middle there, you take the, when you're not in one of those places, you take the things that are important to you and you hang on to them very tightly. And Cardinal baseball is something that people take very emotionally and very personally, sometimes to a fault. But I will say that, like, I, I think I, for the record, I think what a lot of our discussive memory serves was me claiming, probably erroneously, that I don't think a lot of Cardinal fans are walking around going, hello, I'm one of the, I'm the best fan in the world. I'm the best fan in baseball. Everyone else is great. I, I don't think there's explicitly saying that. Do I think that they consider themselves their fandom more special than other teams' fandom? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think it's probably a little worse with the Cardinals than maybe some of some other teams. But every team thinks their fandom. Everybody thinks their fandom is better than everyone else's fandom because it's theirs. And I think part of the Cardinals' problem is, A, you have a ton of Cardinals fans. Like, there's a lot of them. And I say this is a problem. I'm not even sure it is a problem. But with the issue that we're talking about, one is that there's a ton of Cardinals fans. But another issue is that... For a lot of Cardinals fans, like, like th- this is a nightly activity. It was very frustrating for me to see, particularly when, when some of the uglier stuff was going on with the Cardinals, and there was there's that ugliness outside Bush Stadium, and 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 th- this idea of um, you know, and, and people were calling Adam Wainwright like a, a some sort of enforcer of baseball's unwritten rules or something. Which, if you've watched Adam Wainwright play, is absolutely not what Adam Wainwright is at all. And what's frustrating for me is when you see something every day, and I. But there's not a moment the Cardinals are playing where I'm not either watching or fully aware of what the exact score is at any moment. It's a daily part of my life, just like it is for a lot of Cardinals fans. And because of that, when other people come from the outside and have all sorts of thoughts and all sorts of judgments that they have when they're not there every day, I think you react strongly. And because the Cardinals are not the Yankees, where they turn on SportsCenter or turn on MLB Network, they're talking about the Yankees, whether they're good or not. The Cardinals feel like this thing is ours. And Sometimes it's irrational, and sometimes it's wrong, and sometimes it's obnoxious, and that's absolutely true. But I also think it comes from a place of passion. I would much rather have this situation than have apathy. And in 1995 and 1994, during those dark eras of Joe Torre, oh, I don't know whatever happened to that guy. He was such a bad manager. <laughs> those days of Joe Torre, it was really dark, and nobody cared about this team, and they were they were up for sale, and maybe they were going to move to East St. Louis. Like I remember dark times of Cardinal baseball. So if the worst thing I have to deal with is the Cardinals' success, uh, turning making everybody think the Cardinals fans are obnoxious and conceited, I can handle that, because I remember when they were bad. Yeah, and I think the wrap up on this point, I think my I understand a, a standing ovation for Willie McGee every time you see him, or Jose Oquendo, or even even Sotaguchi. But when Abraham Nunez comes up and everyone, hey, hey, let's get up and cry, clap for Abraham Nunez. 
every yeah, single. What's, what's wrong with that? Like, I, honestly, what's wrong with that? I, what bothers it, you about? That? Because it should, those should be saved for Willie McGee and Mark McGuire. You know, it, no, it shouldn't no, be everybody that has Willie put on. McGee is there as opposed to Abraham Newton? Like, clearly, puts, it's different. Everyone puts on a uniform, gets to come back, and gets a standing ovation. I don't like it. Oh no! Heaven forbid we actually <laughs> value these people that we watch every day in our lives. But see, like, that, that's okay, right? This was the argument we had. This is where yes, we exactly. exactly. <laughs> so that's where we go. But that's, that's my. That's what I was saying about just yes. the whole card. I'm sorry, I got to get in the stadium. Hey, thanks, Brad. I got to go. <laughs> I think that's how it ended last time. Always enjoy my time talking to Will Leach. And uh, again, you can read him at MLB.com and many other other places. Go to his Twitter handle and just figure out what all he's writing about now. Uh, always proud of Will Leach, hometown boy. Uh, next author I want to talk about is Jeff Perlman. Jeff is a, a, a great writer. He used to write for Sports Illustrated. And he wrote a book about the 1986 Mets, and I'm, I have a soft spot in my heart for that team. I, I was a Cardinal fan, but boy, did I enjoy the, the 1986 Mets. And he's written about the Dallas Cowboys and Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. But uh, in this in this conversation here, we kind of focus in on, on the uh, 1986 Mets he, book that he wrote called uh, The Bad Boys Won. But the book that I bought, uh, I believe, was your first one, maybe your second one. It's the Mets book, the 1986 Mets. And it's just a weird thing for me. I'm a Cardinal fan, been a Cardinal fan all my life. The Mets were the team I hated in the 80s, yet I love them for some weird... I don't, as a 10-year-old, I still had this... Boy, I got to see what they're up to. I like that team. So you, you wrote this book about the 1986 Mets that really told many stories that I didn't know. Uh, how much fun was it for you to to kind of maybe talk? To, I, I think you you liked the Mets growing up, right? This was sort of a, oh my god, I'm a fanboy. I get to do this, right? Is that does that right? Yeah, I would say so. I um, yeah, I grew up in New York. '86 World Series was a definitive, defining moment in my young sports fandom. Uh, it was my first book ever, you know, and um, so the the sort of ability to um, dive back into a team you grew up watching and start asking the players one by one about their experiences. And that was my first book, and it was really an eye-opening sort of acknowledgement, you know, understanding of how awesome it could be that you get to... It's like looking at a newspaper and then diving into the paper and being able to find out everything that happened and get the stories behind the stories. And the 86 Mets, it was was such... It wasn't my idea. An agent actually came to me, named Susan Reed, with that first idea. And it was such a good idea. Like, it was the perfect idea for a young writer, first book. You know, it was a topic that had a really good chance of selling. It had never been done before. It was a major market. Everything about that was, like, dead on. Uh, that that team, to me, is just one of the I, – I, maybe this is just overstating it. And, again, I'm a Cardinal fan. I think it's one of the great sports teams and stories of that century. Uh, Davey Johnson, first day of spring training, says we're winning the World Series. Uh, Gary Carter gets hit in the face in spring training. Uh, Doc Gooden is uh, is doing his thing. Strawberry, you have these storylines. You've got Wally Backman and Len Dykstra and just these personalities. They and they Then they just win 108 games, and then they almost lose to the Astros. Um, and then they have to go seven games. I mean, for a great team, they still had to struggle to get through those 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 uh, playoff rounds. But I can't think of a team that had more personality, more stories, more brash. I mean, I think they were kind of beginning the curtain calls. Um, do I am I wrong here thinking that you know you wrote about the Cowboys in the '90s and other? Maybe it's just because this is the teams that I grew up watching. But 
Is it, am I wrong to overstate that saying this is one of the most unique, crazy, great teams I've ever seen? No, I mean, well, first of all, it's your observation. But, but second of all, I, I would agree. I also, it's funny how you're a Cardinals fan, and that does not happen without one of the, to me, one of the worst trades for the Cardinals in the history of the franchise, which is Keith Hernandez to the Nets for Neil Allen and Rick Owenby, which is a horrible trade. And, uh, I mean, Hernandez was really, if he wasn't the key, he was one of two or three keys to that team. And a, a real, you know, they needed a veteran. They needed a guy to walk to the round and calm people down. They needed a leader. Uh, and he was just perfect. And that team was, thing is, there's a couple of things. Number one, they went out after games. And they would go to this bar in Long Island called Finn McCool's, where they go to Rusty Stobbs Bar in Manhattan. And if you were a fan, you'd see these guys out. Like, you never see athletes out today. They're not mingling with you. They're either behind a rope or they're in their mansions. Um, and the other thing is, is there was still an era when you had kegs in the clubhouse. So after games, they'd be sitting around tapping a keg. I mean, it was like just bonding. You know, real bonding. So, um, you know, I just, uh, I just think it's, it was such a magical time. You know, really magical. I think my, I think it, because it still goes today. I, I have a real hatred for the Cubs. I, I don't think I even liked those Mets teams, but I liked watching them. And I was, I think I was rooting for them to lose. And and, and I, I have more. It's a weird thing. I have a lot of pleasure. Sometimes more pleasure out of watching the Cubs lose big games. The Steve Bartman thing was just the greatest thing I'd ever seen. I was just really hoping 2016 Cleveland pulled it out. So I don't mind the Cubs kind of getting to the playoffs or the Mets back in the 80s, but I, if it wasn't going to be the Cardinals, I wanted to see how they were going to lose it. I think that's where I come in down that, down that ride. Yeah, I but, understand. I get it. Um, but you, so you detail some great stories, and um, I think a lot of people heard about the flight from hell from Houston. If you don't mind kind of just giving me some of the details you got to hear about, because it is definitely detailed in the book, but after they win Game 7 in Houston, they fly back to New York, and it is a shit show. It's basically the only way to really describe it. And just tell me about how fun that was to kind of get these stories out of these guys. Well, first of all, just as a, to be totally honest, like I wrote that book in 2003, so you're talking about 15 years from me, so I can't promise great, great. But the, the thing I remember the most, you know, so basically um, – they beat the Astros to go to the World Series, and Frank Cashin, the, the general manager, the late Frank Cashin, never allowed wives to fly with the team, but he allowed them to fly in this flight back. And the alcohol was flowing, the drugs were flowing. There's a huge food fight on the plane. Um, Ron Darling, the pitcher, now the Mets announcer, he gave me this very, and it's very sort of vivid and kind of nasty image of the wives who couldn't handle their alcohol vomiting on their patent leather outfits, you know. And, Seats being pushed back and someone snorting coke in the bathroom, the door flying open. Uh, it was just this wild, crazy thing. And, 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 um, a couple of days later, Davey Johnson, well, Frank Cash was livid how much damage was done to the plane and the, the airline gave him a bill. I don't know what it's for, $50,000 or whatever for the damage done to the plane. And Davey Johnson stood before his team and he said, you know, guys, this is, really embarrassing and we should all be ashamed of ourselves and the Mets want us to all pay for this and then he tears up the bill and he says but you know what to hell with them we're about to win them a world series so they can pay this you know blah 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 and everyone goes crazy so it's great it was yeah, i love that stuff really appreciate jeff perlman's time a great re- writer and many many good books out there again he's on twitter so you can look him up and check out those books on amazon so this is my Author's edition of uh, Here's the Pitch, baseball authors, people that write about baseball, and uh, it's always fun talking about baseball. And now I welcome in author Jordan Scott, who's written a book, 
foul ball safety now, and it is about the safety of fans and going to the ballpark in 2021, hopefully, <laughs> and beyond. But Jordan, welcome, and thank you for joining me. And just tell us a little bit about your book and, and how you've gotten involved with fan safety. Oh, thanks, Brad. Great to be here. Um, yeah, the book is uh, a work in progress, uh, but it's uh, coming to conclusion. So I'm excited about the book release very soon. Uh, book editor is going through it, and hopefully uh, before spring training, uh, the book will be out for all to see. Um, my experience with foul balls is just being a fan and going to games and seeing close calls all the time, and I thought I could do something about it. Looks like baseball has sort of worked their way through the stadiums, although they're not mandating these these fences you see at ballparks. But it's a it's really on the team, I guess, right, to sort of decide how much netting they want. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's thirty buildings with uh, major leagues and more than a hundred minor league cities uh, that clearly need to have you know built built suit. You know, make, making sure that each stadium has a plan, and it may be also. Uh, you know, that would be a reason to say something uh, to an outside agency to come in there possibly and have some kind of oversight on, on making sure the nets are where they need to be. So when people pick up the book, uh, Foul Ball Safety Now, what, what will they be reading about as they uh, thumb through the pages of, uh, of this book? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, well, each chapter is interesting. We, 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 we wrote a chapter just on the baseball rule, which is a compelling topic in itself that um, the thing on the back of the baseball ticket, which tells us uh, that we're at our own risk. People do have some ideas the balls are coming, but they have no idea that it could happen to them. That's an interesting topic. So how can people get the book? Is it available now? And tell us where, uh, where we can find it. I appreciate it. Thank you. You can go to foulballsafetynow.com, and um, I think all the information is there if you want a copy or if you want to sign up for to be notified when the book is released but foul ball safety now love to uh love to hear your thoughts anytime and uh yeah this was great a big thank you to all the authors who joined me here today on here's the pitch and that will do it for today's podcast hopefully you enjoyed it more podcasts coming in 2021 baseball related entertainment related they're going to be just all over the place in 2021 but i can't wait and again always go to youtube check those out on YouTube. I do video podcasts over there. ST Weekly is my channel on YouTube. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.